Hello, everybody, and welcome to Import This, a podcast for humans. This is episode three, and unfortunately, our co-host, Alex, is uh, not available today. He is suffering from a bout of depression because he realized that Twitter still exists. <laughs> and I'm uh, filling in for him today is James Dennis of, uh, for me, Twitter fame. That's how we're buddies. Hi. Hello. Yeah. Done some I, things in Python, some things in music. What would our Python listeners know you from? I mean, in my opinion, the thing that was really cool back in the day that you built that I told people about was uh, Dict Shield. Oh, yeah, sure. Because that um, was like a, a cool concept of like, it was basically, uh, what's, what's the right word? Kind of like validators for dictionaries. You got it. Yep. Yeah. That's where the name came from. And also... Uh, at the time, I had recently left financial services and didn't know too many people in the Python community. And so it was kind of a way of reaching out and going like, hey, I'm trying to have a good time, make you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember there being a few competitors to that as well. Uh, yeah, there were some other things that emerged. Um, I think there's one called Marshmallow, which seems to be pretty close to it today. Um, so the name of the project uh, later became Schematics. Ah, and, okay. Yeah, so I was... Um, so the Dick Shield was a little bit cheeky, and it got cheeky internally too. So when validation failed, they would throw a Dick Punch exception. <laughs> it's, I mean, it was definitely me just staying up at two a.m. thinking nobody's ever going to look at this code. I'm just going to put it on GitHub, and no one will see it. And uh, at some point, I get an email from this guy named Faust over at a company called Quantopian, and he's like, you know. I really like what you're doing here. It's it's kind of like an ORM without the database layer. And so he was kind of yeah. seeing it as like a type system in a way. And it's type system, validator, like these are all kind of the same-ish idea. And he was like, Well, and the to... obvious use case for me is API totally. validation nowadays. Yeah. I think that was less common back then, that concept. Yes, yes. And so where uh, the first version of this came from was actually I was using an ORM called Mongo Engine. And so this was my first time using MongoDB. All of the criticisms of MongoDB are, are fair, but this is what I was using at the time. And what I found was that uh, Mongo Engine was creating about four or five gigs worth of extra indexes that we didn't need. And so my solution to this was just kind of a moment of rage. And I was like, well, screw the database layer. I'm just going to rip it out. And because what I needed was the don't need no database. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> it's like, I'll just send a dictionary to Mongo. It'll figure it out. And I mean, but, it, of course, but you want to make sure before you send it that it's clean and sanitized. You got it. And so that's exactly what the validation purposes left over were. And so at the time, all I had was uh, Dict Shield. I hadn't done any web serving stuff yet, uh, but I was using Tornado. And Tornado was a big thing in New York City at the time. But everybody was using Tornado uh, with blocking database calls inside. And so I started looking at alternatives like. Um, like G-Event and Eventlet and just what the other options were. And so that's kind of what led me to start thinking in terms of building Brubeck. And so uh, Brubeck was a web server that would read 0MQ messages from Mongol2 and then respond by sending messages back to Mongol2, which it would then send out. And so um, I built that. And then when I started testing the performance of it, what I found was that it was really fast, and I didn't understand why it was so fast. <laughs> and I, I actually, I thought, like, this can't be right. I, I didn't mean for it to be fast. How could it possibly be this fast? And so um, 
I started talking to people about it. You accidentally we web scaled. Yeah, yeah. And so what I found was uh, we skipped whiskey. And so we were skipping something that at the time was a bit of a, a bottleneck in some ways. And so all I was doing was reading zero and Q messages. It just happened to be that I was writing HTTP output that was going in. And so by nature of You were skipping, skipping whiskey, whiskey altogether. It was, yeah, and it ended up being super fast. <laughs> uh, like it could read a message whenever it wanted. It could respond whenever it wanted. It didn't have that, like... The generator paradigm. That and was so, was this running then? Typically, if you're to deploy this, would you use something like Gevent as well? Yeah. To to serve those responses back to Mongol two. You got it. So, what Brubeck ended up being was something that would read Mongol two messages. It would validate the data with uh, Dict Shield, which I I'll just call it schematics from here on. Um, I would validate the data with schematics, and then I would use Gevent for the concurrency library. And so when, once you enter an opinion on concurrency in the Python world, Twitter becomes a totally different space. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was trying to talk to people going like, hey, this is pretty fast. Uh, isn't that cool? And, and they're I like, found, yeah, but you're cheating. Yeah, kind of. And I, I found like the Twisted community was like, yeah, but you can't guarantee the order of computation. And to me, I was like, yeah, but it's just a website. Like, I, It's just, it's just a website. <laughs> And so, like, their arguments are, are good uh, for all of the control that they want. But from my point of view, it's just like, I'm just doing web serving. Yeah, there's, a, there's a time and place for everything. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious, have you ever talked to Armin Roenicker about this? Because I know he's big on this style of infrastructure. Uh, no, he's another person that, I've, that I had this feeling like if I just ended up hanging out with this guy somehow, we would probably end up friends because we seem to think in the same direction. <laughs> I've never had a conversation with him before. Huh. Um, yeah, he, he's. I I know. I don't remember what company it was that he was working at, but he built a. You know, it was all based around I think Redis and, uh, you know, incoming messages get sent out, and that's just the way you do web stuff in, in that model. And it's shockingly uncommon. It seems yeah. like a pretty like common sense approach to me. Everything goes yeah. in a queue. Uh, I've that's seen some, see something recently. I can't remember what it's called in like the last six months that. It's like a framework that does this. I, do, you, hmm. do Does it sound familiar to you? Um, I, there was definitely a flurry of people that are doing kind of pipeline of coroutine frameworks for a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> so maybe I can't that's what it was. Specifically, what you had in mind? Yeah, neither do I. It was something came out that was like, "This will be really easy now," and everyone was real excited about it. Hmm. And I was like, we, "You know, you could you could have been doing this five years ago." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a thing for me. Like. Like, Twisted and Tornado are great at what they do, but it always felt unpythonic to me. And so um, it was kind of an interesting experience. Like, I, I, Sorry, there's one more project, and then I'll go back to telling a bit more of the Brubeck stories. Um, so I find out that Brubeck is fast, and I don't believe it. Um, and so people are telling me I should set up a test on Amazon, where I'll just set up a web server and turn on a bunch of EC2 micros and just have it flood the Brubeck instance, and we'll see how it does. And so <clears throat> Eventlet uh, was what I used at the time just to try another library, and uh, I found the Paramico SSH library, and so yep. that's SSH written entirely in Python, that fits really nicely inside the G-Event Eventlet world, and I ended up with this tool called MicroArmy that uh, would use Boto to turn on a machine, or 20 machines, however many you wanted. It would SSH to all of them in parallel, copy a script over, run the script to install it, it would install Siege, the load testing tool, and then when that was done, uh, you would run another command, which would actually run siege against your web server on all these machines, bring all the text back, and then aggregate it into a report on how they all did. 
And so those were kind of like the three things that uh, I think were meaningful to the open source world. It was the data modeling library, the web framework, and then uh, distributed load testing tool. That's a lot and of stuff. It, yeah. I, I like how you have a cohesive story behind all of it. There's something I wanted to bring up. I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was now. I have a terrible memory sometimes. Oh, yeah. uh, so you, you were talking about Brewback and just the way that, you know, Python developers, we were talking about how we have a tendency to like, you know, like there's like a trend in the community of like, oh, mm-hmm. people are doing this now, or there's are these things being built now. Yeah. And I want, I want, I thought that'd be an interesting thing to discuss. Just the concept of like, this is something that you could have been doing five years ago yeah. and, that, and that people talk about, but like, you know, there's, there's not like a, a, there's not something built for it. That's like Django or something. Then it doesn't really, people don't do it. Like people don't kind of build their own things. They're, everyone's building things out of everyone else's Legos. You're totally right. You're totally right. Um, it's kind of an interesting point to say that there wasn't like a Django for that. Um, because I think when, like, one of the, like, Django is powerful for the fact that if people aren't totally sure what they want to use, they feel like they're taken care of inside the framework, you know? And so yeah. if you feel that you're confined inside that framework, then Flask is a good choice for you, too. And so there's kind of, like, the batteries included. There's the super simple form, and it takes a massive amount of work to go from something that is the super simple form into the batteries included approach. And so uh, I felt like I was just kind of one person exploring some ideas and... Uh, I had worked on it during hacker school and they had, they were starting their second batch and asked if I would just come down and kind of hang out. And a bunch of us were all actively working on Brubeck and schematics at the time. And somebody ended up building this feature where all you had to do was define a schematics model. And so that's basically just a data structure. Uh, and then Brubeck would build the whole REST API for you. And like, I thought that was really cool. And sure enough, other frameworks got that later, but it, it kind of, it was telling me that the only commodity part, um, was essentially the structure of the data inside that world. And so I started, like, I wanted to figure out what else I could do to expand upon it. And so um, I started getting really into schematics. And kind of an interesting thing that happened was, while I'm trying to maintain all these things at the same time, they're feeding into each other, a lot of people were discovering my other work because of Brubeck. And so people would go, oh, Zed Shaw, what's my Python choice? And they would end up at Brubeck. And then they would see schematics and microarmy and go, oh, wait a second, those things are cool too. And schematics ended up being way more popular than Brubeck ever was, which actually felt right to me. Uh, for a while when Brubeck was getting all the attention, I kind of felt like schematics was a bit of an unsung hero because I felt like the idea of just structuring data and transforming it at any point you want is useful. Like you can send a zero MQ message, you can parse the API inputs, you can, you can build really simple data layers. Um, if you could, if you could implement the functions for CRUD, you could have a reasonable ORM. You know, I, like, I, uh, <laughs> I, I started a project that I never finished. Of course, um, there's a lot of those, <clears throat> and it was called. I've uh, got so many too. I can't remember the name. It was a great name, but basically, it it was just REST is not bound to HTTP. Uh, yeah. Just to those four methods, effectively. Yeah. So it was a it was a simple. Um, Python library that allowed you to just kind of add that layer onto any Python code. Yeah. Um, and I, the reason I never finished it, no, I had like a prototype that worked and it was really cool and it could link to each other and stuff. The, the objects um, is that, oh, resources. That's what it was called, resources. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, is that I just realized that there was there's effectively no market for that library. No one <laughs> really cares enough about that problem space to use it because people like using these like pre-built things and giving them a that would be a pre-built tool to do something that people don't want to do basically. Yeah. yeah. Even though it's a really powerful thing, like yeah. it's it's a lot easier to kind of stick with the with the current if you will. I agree. And a lot of databases were just at a point where it's like, there's a REST interface to storing it anyway. So, you know, yeah, you just, just... It's, they're coming with their own web systems built into them. So all I really had to do was somehow give them some JSON or some other object format. And so schematics could just give you data that would be fit for a Python dictionary where you have like a native date time or it could parse out to something uh, that we call primitive. And it's just strings. It's anything that could go into a JSON string. And so from there, you can, you can put it in whatever you want. Put it in S3 if you want. <laughs> yeah, S3 is a fantastic key value store. Yeah. It's my yeah. favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> I use it like that quite a bit. I mean, that actually is what it is, is a key it's, value store. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, but from a programmatic point of view, it's just rest. Put this thing there. S3 is like, yeah, sure. Of course, that's not, it's not very good for things like searching. So that's why they made... Um, uh, DynamoDB, which is yeah. it's like mini S3. It's like oh, you can have things that are like two, like up to sixty-four K, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love DynamoDB. It's fantastic. Oh, me too. I like it's kind of a, a gnarly thing to consider. Just in, I think, in the context of of tech revolutions, a thing that we're kind of watching at the moment, which is um, if you look at, at the behavior of previous tech revolutions, you kind of get this phase where in the it's like a, so Carlotta Perez describes it as like this like 60 year phase where the first half is kind of about first inventing the technology. This is just for people. technologies in general? Yeah. She, so she describes this kind of cycle where technology interacts with financial capital. And I think ah. there's something really profound in her theories, which is kind of affecting us right now. So uh, her theories is like you start kind of with the hobbyists who figured out that like maybe we can use electricity to compute values and they don't really understand what they're looking at just yet. But it's yeah. enough that they keep working on it, and eventually you get to somebody's figured out how to build a microcomputer, and then Intel opens up shop. And so now the economics are starting to kick in, and so that starts at about 1970, according to her theories. So we had computing prior to that, definitely. Um, but 1970 is kind of when the economic phase, she describes, starts. And so the first half is then convincing people to buy all the hardware and to install the infrastructure. And then the oh, yeah, that's when you had Microsoft and IBM yeah. going out and shelling out you know, like the ads on TV. You know, yeah. Buy Windows, man. You totally. Know, have you seen those? They're amazing. Oh, yeah. There's Steve Ballmer like, selling Windows 2.0 or something on like <laughs> late night QVC. It's ridiculous. I love old Microsoft so much. It's, um, I know. <laughs> well, it's... they invented selling software, from what I understand. I don't know if IBM was doing it before. I guess they were doing it, but they were doing it to the enterprise. They weren't doing it to individuals. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, they famously said that they thought there was a worldwide market for five computers. <laughs> 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 and I think, like, Microsoft is fascinating because he sold the OS before he actually had it. So he also kind of carries that sort of Silicon Valley spirit in a way. <laughs> he sold, he was the first to sell software and he didn't own what he sold. <laughs> But he got it. He got it together. He found that, someone that, to sell he's, the OS. Microsoft is the ultimate lean startup. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Just make sure someone's going to buy it before you build it. Yeah. And so then the the second phase of what this cycle that Perez describes is uh, she calls it the deployment phase. Uh, and this phase is all about the wish uh, phase. Now, 
the deployment phase. Okay. And so to her, now that the tech infrastructure is installed, you deploy this capability out to every other sector of the economy. Mm. And so, you let it infuse into into every other market? Yeah. Yeah. Penetrate, penetrate all the other markets. Totally. Yeah. So um, in the 80s and 90s, we were trying to convince people to buy computers. In the 2000s, everybody had a phone in their pocket. So now we're telling them to order cabs on their phones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of like a linear sequence of things. And now when you're happen. chatting on Facebook with someone casually and you use the word Uber, Facebook is like, there's an yeah. Uber, Uber button. Right. And so like that, <laughs> that's the world that we live in now. And like, it's kind of amusing to go back and think about the web frameworks where I'm like, I was building things that answer REST requests, but I'm looking at the world and we're in this like fascinating point in time when technology is touching everybody. It's not, it's not just like the people who think computers are cool. It's, it's people just living their ordinary lives. These things are everywhere. That's the thing that interests, I I, I don't know the right way to coin this phrase, but uh, I don't know, just what, I guess what, where I take pride in just the field that I work in and what I work on is like, I can go up to anybody and I don't, but you know, I can relate, I'm related to them somehow. Like the the things I have done, uh, you know, they don't know, but it, it is indirectly touches their lives you know what yeah. I mean? yeah oh, totally. and, and it's at such a broad scale it's absolutely astronomical yeah it's i think like it, that is still fascinating and cool to me you know like i grew up when like the thing that got me online was mp3s because that was new and then so much has happened since then and the internet and people's relationship with technology is still fascinating I, I'm really changing. interested in like just seeing where it was, you know, like eight years ago, and yeah. then like uh, sixteen years ago, and, and going forward, just thinking how big of a jump that was. Yes, like I, I just, I'm. It makes me excited, but it also makes me kind of, I don't want to say scared. It gives me mild anxiety. Yeah, because of how I love how I, Facebook is one of my favorite things ever. I use it constantly. It's pretty uh, great, and a lot of people hate it in our community. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, like that, just the core concept of it and what it does is, I think it, it's a really fantastic user phasing tool. Yeah. Uh, it empowers people's lives and just you know things like that of that nature that are so ubiquitously adopted so quickly. Yeah. Um, and Pokemon Go, seeing that happen overnight, like right. even in my little, I live in Winchester, Virginia, which is thirty thousand people, an hour and a half west in the boonies of yeah. DC. You know, and like it's ubiquitous. Over it isn't anymore. It's still some people playing it, but it was like I, I couldn't go for a walk at two in the morning without running <laughs> yeah. into thirty Pokemon players, and you know, so just I don't know if that'll get worse like that effect. <laughs> like I guess I like the fact that I'm so into technology because it makes me special. Like it's a little unique. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's. I don't know if that's becoming less the case or not. I, I, it seems like so far it's not. I could see it. Uh, well, I think, I think things are changing. And so yeah. part of the reason I find Perez's theory so interesting is because she, she starts with the Industrial Revolution. And then she's like, then there was an age of steam. And so just thinking about the age of steam is fascinating to me because it's really easy to forget that there was a time when we didn't have highways. Like, that's all new. And it was very young. recent. Yeah. And very, so very, very the, recent. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And so back in the day, they would set up canals because, like, their highway was a highway for steamships. And so, like, I forgot about that. But part of what she describes is you start with the steam and then it starts to go out to everywhere else. And then basically in the middle of the 60-year cycle, 
you find that the financiers did what they always do, which is that they went totally nuts and they gave everybody so much money and they created a bubble. And so she argues that this is valuable because it, it funds a huge amount of creativity and a lot of ideas get tried. And so we kind of find the best ideas really quickly through that, but then there's a bubble. And so a lot of people get financially ruined. And Yeah, so it's like it has a positive side and a negative side. Yeah, and I think... Like, it's an interesting thing to consider because her, her theories are pretty compelling. And so I find it difficult to hear what she says and then think, oh, the next one's not going to have a bubble. Like, I totally expect the bubble to happen again. And well, it's weird. I have that strange. <laughs> I, I know it's probably not true, but there is that feeling that, like, the tech thing is the last the last big one, right? What, well, well, it of course it's what you call tech, which is the thing that I like so much about it. So yeah. Steamships were tech and then electricity That's true. Tech, it's always you know? been tech. It's always been tech. You got it. So there's, like, there's a lot of interesting esoteric theories about that. Is that technology is using us? You know, we're just oh, like totally. here to craft it out of the ground. Yeah, and that sil- silicon and sand is God, basically. Yeah, kind of. It's <laughs> like I sort of imagine in the early days of all this, like people looking up to Tesla and then people looking up to Edison, and they're like, just imagine what you can do when you can light the whole world up at night, and it's like. I'm like, really? Because I'm kind of annoyed by the fact that my phone screen is so bright. So it's like an interesting contrast between where we are and where we were. And so to kind of tie it back to what she was saying, it's, I get the sense that we're 15 years into the second half of her theory on the information age. which After, means the, 30, after the 30 year mark, 15 years past? Yeah, so we're like 75% of the way through. Wow. And so she says right around this time is when the next revolutions start picking up. And mm-hmm. it's tempting to, to Is speculate. it safe to consider that's maybe like the industry stuff that's happening, like Uber and Yeah, that? exact, that's exactly part of her theory. So she goes, at some point, everybody has to install the tech. And then when that's done, you have this huge bubble because nobody knew what this was really going to be used for. And then when the bubble comes down, there's a couple of years where people kind of come back to their senses and they go, okay, let's get real about what this can do. Like maybe pets.com wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe... The fact that San Francisco maybe has Amazon.com was yeah totally totally and so like I find that interesting because it's like as I get older I'm kind of looking at the tech world and I'm going like what what do I want from this what do I want to contribute to this and I'm simultaneously having a mini existential do you feel crisis. like the ground is like <laughs> crumbling beneath you if when you look at it that way where it's like what the ground you stand on is no longer really yeah. solid because In it's a way. changing so much yeah like. Um, I don't necessarily know how feasible I expect this to be, but Google has made it clear that they're looking into whether or not machine learning can generate code. <laughs> so maybe the question is like, okay, so let's let's not get too pedantic on it. Let's not expect them to have 100% accuracy. But what if it's 70% good enough? What if it's like 80% good enough? What if it's not perfect, but what if it's enough that all you really well, need are like the top 10 programmers, top 10% I, or something? I feel like that if they were doing something like that, it would probably... I've heard this from other people too that it would be um, to replace kind of the the day job style programmers that work at big Fortune 500 companies to just meet business needs. You know, yeah. Like I feel like most of the developers I meet don't fall into that category. Yeah, and so but, but those people matter too. Well, I agree. I think it's it's precarious, like because they're but they're kind of more like industrial, yeah, uh, industrialized developers. You know. Yeah, it's. I feel like for people like us, they're just, they're just a headcount, as opposed yeah. to like here's a really valuable individual on my team. And that's because different companies operate in different ways at different 
in different uh, categories and, you know. Totally. Like, if the economy like that's swung, a needed and the, thing some, in, in a lot of places. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely is. Like, I, So I'm kind of an optimist. Like, I generally think technology creates more jobs than it gets rid of. But I think um, there's a part of me which thinks if those people wanted to have kind of a safe sort of commodity job where they're paid reasonably well for a big company, I also kind of feel like they're not going to take it that personally if they have to switch their careers, where I feel like people yeah. from the open source world are, are clearly really passionate about this, and they're just going to do it anyway. You know, like, these are people who are writing software for free in their spare time. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do this anyway, whatever happens. Yeah, it's all about sustainability. And for me, uh, I've kind of fallen into a weird spot. I joined Heroku like five, four and a half years ago. Mm. And I was very much in, still in this phase of like, I'm like coding every night and like, you know, in, on, on all these open source projects and creating new things and really excited about all these like web ideas I have that I want to build. And, uh, you know, as I was like halfway through the tenure I've had so far, I came into this like existential crisis where it was like, do I want to like, you know, if if I, I like this company and they're great, do I want to stay here and just like be comfortable? And, um, and my, my fear was of stagnation effectively. Totally. Because like I, you know, switching companies is kind of always the way that I didn't stagnate or I learned really new crazy things. Uh, and, you know, being at a company for four and a half years in the tech world is a really long time in, in my circles. Um, but I came to, to terms with the fact that, you know, I was fa- changing the phase of what I wanted to do. You know, I kind of like my primary focus is my hobbies and code is one of those for sure. But it's not like. I, it's not a career hobby like it was before. Yeah, you know, I had a career and a career hobby. You know, and now I'm yeah. like, okay, I need to breathe. I need to like go, you know, write some music and stuff. Yeah, basically. Totally. Uh, I don't. Uh, there was a takeaway from that. I don't remember what it was. Well, so like I, this is something that I think about a lot. Like, um, I guess once I start, once I kind of pulled away from the computers, and I was trying to to think about where I thought society was going, I kind of couldn't stop, and so I kind of went off. A deep end by just reading as much as I could about history and uh, trying to study the different economic thinkers and I started looking at the whole world like this crazy computer system that doesn't totally make sense so I should probably get to work on trying to learn it <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> right <laughs> but I'm, ge- I'm generally very optimistic about technology I think um, yeah like I think text is not given enough credit for how important it is. A lot of people will talk about agriculture and they say, oh, it's great because it brought people together. And I'm like, well, I think the real advancement in society is when people started writing things down. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've given a talk about that, actually. I, I gave oh, a talk really? about uh, documentation at Write the Docs. And um, and I've, give, I've given a couple different forms of this same pitch, but the idea is basically, uh, you know, we have primitive humans and they're this certain way and they they can't communicate with each other and then eventually they develop the ability uh, to speak to one another mm-hmm. and then eventually um, you, you get this uh, one to many communication mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of you know you can talk to a group of people that's that's what that is but if you were to scale that out it's it's you you have to develop a writing mm-hmm. and that, that's how you take uh, an idea uh, basically and you, you can uh, I, I have to look at the graphs 
but you, you can uh, persist it over time. So yeah. with, with that, you can make it go distance. Yeah. Uh, so you can like, okay, I'm going to do the, say this thing effectively. And then maybe in, in eight days, someone else will read it. And I, I have a picture of the, like the earliest known, like writing. Oh, and wow, it's, really? it's just these crazy style hieroglyph things. And, <laughs> But there's there's almost no dimensionality to it. It's like huh. it's just this big brick of like shapes, and I'm like, this is what people used to do, you know. And this is, and then it, you know, just the evolution of of everything we've done with the printing press and the book yeah. and how that affected us. And we had the internet, which allows us to do many to many communication. Yeah. Uh, i basically my my pitch is that. Python is like one of the most important things for humans ever. You know, all the programming languages, but Python's really special to me. So my pitch was that Python uh, allows you to build these tools that you can read. Anybody can do it, and anybody can reach anyone. You know, yeah. that has internet access, and that is, if you look at the trends, if you look, if you look at history that way, that is basically what humans are optimizing for is uh, communication. Yeah, uh, and so. You know, and decentralization, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Well, we still we still value one to one and and uh, one to many. Uh, yeah. But one to many is becoming far less important. That I think that's where the decentralization comes in. If you just have CNN and Fox News giving you news, yeah, like you have a problem. But with the internet, we have tons of news sources in addition to those. Yeah. So they're, they're becoming less important. Uh, and you have the many to many where anyone can do anything, and they naturally come and go and. And it's great. And again, I don't remember where I'm going with this, but there was something that I had in mind. Well, I think it's really interesting to try and compare computer systems to sort of life systems. Like, um... Oh, I do remember what I was going to say. Mm. Uh, so I just I, I took this project that I have called the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, mm-hmm. um, which is a Sphinx Python project. And um, I, you know, I wrote an outline and I filled in the parts that I knew a lot about. And then I wrote headers for everything else that should be in there. And I made it an open source project, and I told people about it. And over 100 people have contributed. And now it's being published by O'Reilly, which is exciting. And I don't think in history that's ever been possible before, before the last... you know, five years, ten years, yeah. Like, like for literally a hundred strangers to just like on a whim write a book, you know, yeah. and like I just think that's the most incredible thing in the world, and that's the exciting thing, you know, is technology affecting like these really basic things like book writing, and so Wikipedia is another really great example. Oh, totally. Nobody's ever going to try and write a commercial encyclopedia again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, unless it's a really happen. great curated uh, printing of. Of Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of amusing because I, I might I might be I would, willing to buy something. Like exactly, that. <laughs> I would totally buy that. I have offline backups of it just just in case. It's awesome. <laughs> every every six months or so, I download a new copy. Just, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really really valuable information. <laughs> totally. <laughs> anyway, awesome. I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt. What were you going to say? Um. Hmm. Gosh, I lost that thought, actually. Um, oh, I may have just been talking about how, how great I think the world is at the moment. You know, like, if, if we agree that text is fundamentally important, like, the information ages is the system for propelling it all. And now we have machines that will read the text and try to put together context on what's happening in the world. And it's all happening almost right away. That's, 
that's going to be cool forever, at least until the next tech revolution starts, which I think is when the machines are going to start interacting with the physical world, and that's going to get even crazier. Internet of Things. Yeah. It, the interesting well, thing about that is is that I've found, I know I, the people I've spoken with as well as observed in myself is that I I read much more than I ever have. Me too. On the Internet, I don't traditionally read at all. Mm. And... Um, like books and stuff. I know some people do, but it's it's a rarity. Most people have trended away from more long form content and move more towards articles and just like you know you read Facebook and stuff like that all day. Sure. So we're consuming more text uh, and interacting with it, but it's definitely the text itself is changing. You know, yeah. like I can't read a book. That's that's seems like the lowest bandwidth form of information consumption in the world. Well, it's interesting because technology has a solution for that too, audiobooks, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that does help uh, if, I, if I do want to do that. But, you know, there's, it's uh, just in general, like, you know, books were the, the knowledge base before. Totally. And they still are for like real specialty stuff, but yeah. it's becoming more and more or less the case. It's kind of fascinating to consider uh, how much serendipity goes away when we stop having the need for all of these physical things. Like, so I've been kind of considering my own relationship with physical things lately as I get back in the routine of having physical things after that bad startup. I'm really <laughs> but, um, into owning things right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and my relationship with books is interesting. So like, I've played guitar since I was a kid. I picked up drums about four years ago. I've written music forever. You would expect me to be way into whatever's going on in the music world, but to me it's just Spotify. <laughs> when it well, comes mu- to music books. doesn't really change that much. It's kind of a... I mean, the trends in what people are playing is changing, but yeah. but music itself is kind of set in stone at the moment. It seems like, to me. Like, they figured that out. They've been doing it for a while. Oh, the, tech, oh, the transition of, of music from old form to technology form? Yeah, totally. Well, both that and just kind of like, you know, what being a musician is effectively. Although yeah. technology is definitely infusing that. Like, you, everyone's their own record, recording artist now. And that wasn't possible before. Which is an interesting thing, like, from my perspective, when things get so easy to take place, there's a huge amount of serendipity. But then it, people, I feel like, become more open-minded to, like, a smaller number of players becoming the most important ones. Um, so it's like this kind of power law sort of relationship where if you overwhelm people enough, they kind of all gravitate towards the same things. And so I yeah. think there's like a certain kind of personality that loves music enough to constantly be looking for more stuff and sifting through the huge volumes that come out. And I think there's also a lot of people who kind of want to go, well, I like Taylor Swift, so I just put that in Pandora and they kind of <laughs> stuff that's like that. And I welcome all of them, you know, like they sustain this thing and keep it going and the reality around the economics of the music industry is that Apple makes more money in one quarter selling iPhones than the music industry makes in an entire year. Yeah. So, like, this is another place where people are just kind of doing it for the love of it. And I, I feel like I understand a lot about software by seeing the way musicians dedicate themselves to things. And I learned a lot about how to bring out creativity from software engineers by my expectations from just hanging around musicians all the time. And it's kind of like... I've, I'm really kind grateful... Of- for the experience of being able to live a life where like I'm mostly creative for a living, you know? And I think it's it's sort of fascinating the world of people you end up interacting with. And so some engineers, they love the complexity, they love every little detail to be worked out, and they'll end up writing a language where they don't write too much code 
but it does everything perfectly and it's never going to crash. Like the type system that they chose is going to protect it and all of these things. <clears throat> and I feel like there's so much upfront knowledge that you need to have and there's constantly reasons to consider that like maybe I'm not doing this right. And so to tie it back to some of what you were saying about Python earlier, like I really appreciate the fact that Python is not a perfect language. I sort of look at it as though it's like the English of, pro of programming languages. Like yeah. anyone who's into computing can probably figure out how to write it. So the data science people are way into it. Web people are way into it. And I um, think that English is the best language to know. To, to, it's just the best language at the moment. It's well, so many and, people and know for it, so right? many it's different reasons. Question. Yeah, it's very ubiquitous, and uh, anyone who isn't speaking English wants to speak English. Yeah, uh, it's becoming more and more ubiquitous, and I think it's uh, it's a little esoteric in a lot of ways, but it's also very elegantly stitched together from other languages. Totally, in kind of mysterious ways. Yeah, uh, and it's you know, I I really like it. Yeah, um, I mean, it's got its weird things. Like, I think to me, like English is basically Esperanto. Effectively, yeah. like it's the you know everyone wants Esperanto, like this one language that we'll all speak. And I, I do think China, of course, is a, a big question mark. But I, oh, I China's fascinating because they have such a large uh, population and um, basically no rules. <laughs> well, I just mean in terms of like language ubiquity. Oh uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I English on the internet, in particular, can kind of be compared to Esperanto, or that is the. You know, you assume that that's what people speak, and it, it works that way in India too, where mm. there are so many dialects—not dialects, they're different languages that different cities speak, yeah. and different dialects. That if you meet, if you're in India and you're just walk up to a random stranger and you don't know if they're from where you are, you speak English. That's what they do mm. most of the time. Like in Bangalore, I, I heard English the entire time I was there. Oh, that's but, interesting. Because that's that's the default way. It's easy. That's the easiest way to communicate. Yeah. Yeah, even though they can communicate much better in their own language, yeah, uh, they don't know if the other person speaks it or yeah, the other people listening. So it's, it's true. Like people in China will claim to speak the same language and they can't talk to each other. And <laughs> this, this problem was actually so bad in Indonesia that they made a really basic form of the language that doesn't even have tense because they wanted to make something that everybody could just kind of learn quickly. And so wow. if, if you've already had food. You only say, only the present tense, or there just is no tense at all? You got it. There's no tense. So if you've already had food, you would say, I already eat. There's, like, no adjustments to the words to add Oh, that's kind of, oh so there's no words. tense conjugation. That's right. Cool. Yeah. Huh. I like, it, I, I hate learning a language, but I love learning about the structure of them and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I want to learn, I don't want to learn. I'm interested in studying the mechanics behind Sanskrit a bit. Mm. Be, because it, uh... So, from what I understand, um, you know, Latin is a great language for, we use it for very official things. Uh, there's like two or three different levels that are different language roots of formality that we use in English. That You have like English, uh, you know, the, the stuff from England, which is mm -hmm. like the lowest class of the stuff that you say. Um, and then you have a level above, which is usually French-influenced. Uh, and you have a, a level, there might be one or two, I can't remember, but there's Latin is the most formal. Hmm. So you use that for, you know, complex scientific descriptions and stuff like that, like for a name of something that needs to be very hierarchical. Hmm. So, in a, so, in a, so in a sense, Latin, uh, Latin is a very scientific language. Um, now, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I have someone who appeared to be a well... Um, 
studied and academic person in this field mm. stated that Sanskrit is is basically like that times 10 effectively and mm. the amount of description that you can have and that makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of uh, there's a lot of really great science ancient science that can't, comes from that part of the world oh um, yeah yeah. yeah, like our our numerals, for example. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, so apparently, you can have <laughs> some Trump Sanskrit where our numbers come from. <laughs> so you can take Sanskrit text that, and it can have very, very, very deep amount of um, nuance to it that hmm. that would require a lot of words in English. And so, I'm just interested in learning about how that works effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I think I, I connect with something you said in that I'm super fascinated by the mechanics and the structures of all these things, but once we get to the phase where I have to memorize a lot of stuff, I yeah. might go on to something else. Wait, <laughs> waste of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like that's actually probably something that a lot of programmers can vibe with because that's kind of what we do is we, we just literally focus on the mechanics of anything and then implement it. Yeah. We don't, we, we, we don't have to deal with the with the nonsense of, you know, the, of what would be memorized, whatever that is, the content. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating how programming opened up a lot of understanding of the world to me. Because, like, I remember when I was a kid in math class, I would see a sigma symbol on the math, on the math board or something like that. And I, I just couldn't wrap my head around what it was. Like, part of me didn't care. I was kidding. Yeah, math. why is that on the board? Yeah. <laughs> and then I implement a for loop, and I'm like, this makes perfect sense. And somebody pointed out to me at one point that it's the same thing. And I was like, why was it so hard back then? It, like the the math world makes sense to me through computing. It's yeah. just the structures. Well, yeah, that's. Uh, I had a great conversation with Steve Holden, who I hope to have as a co-host on the show soon. Mm. Uh, Steve's great. A long time ago, I don't remember, but basically, he helped uh, cohese an, an idea I had, which is just basically that computer science is not what should be taught in schools. I hate when people say that. Over and over, they're like, everyone should learn how to program. Like, that oh, I don't really, think everyone should. <laughs> that really people. bothers me. But yeah. computational thinking is extremely important. Oh, sure. And that's the primary way of learning it at the moment. And that, we should work on that. You know, yeah. Which is basically what you're talking about, you know, that, that whole concept. Yeah, well, I think like Python plays kind of an interesting role in this sense because by nature of not being perfect, it's also really accessible to a lot of people. And so like, you don't have to learn what a... In the Milner type system is to write Python. You just write x equals five, and it takes it. And if you change your mind that x should be a string later, it'll take it. It's a very en- Englishable language. Yeah, totally. And so when you like look at good, like even PHP or something like that, there's just a lot of syntax. And Python is very. That's, when I say I love the design of Python, it's for a lot of reasons, especially in the data structures and stuff, mm. the data, the data model, but um, and the internals. But specifically, just the the, the design of the syntax is exquisite in my opinion it makes it so nice to look at like i came to python from Perl and java and financial services that was chaos now i will admit if you've ever seen python code that was not as by someone who's never even seen pepe it can be really really bad yes so so having standards helps a lot (laughs) it it approached php level of like whoa (laughs) but Oh, actually, so this would be interesting to talk about. PHP is one of my favorite languages. Right I, on. And I don't, I don't want to say modern PHP because I feel I work at Heroku and we have a PHP guy there, uh, David Zolke. He's great, and he loves Python more than PHP. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but um, so he has great taste. Basically, he's German mm-hmm. as well. That's uh, awesome. And 
there's a there's a big trend in modern PHP development to actually write code effectively. Um, you know, to to write structure and classes and functions and like mm. you're actually writing engineering something. Mm. Uh, it's more complex than just uploading a .php file that runs. Yeah, <laughs> for me, I, when I did PHP, it was mostly that. You know, I had I may have had a framework or two and mm. and some a bunch of stuff that I did, but it was mostly you know a really great HTML template language, you know? Mm. And I used to build so many fun HTML-oriented things and toys when I was writing PHP until the day, until Flask came out effectively, and I figured Mm. out how to do web in Python, and I used my Python approach, which is engineer-oriented and, like, design the classes the right way and focus on all that stuff, Mm. the opposite of what I was doing before. And I never built another toy, fun, random thing ever again. <laughs> and that's, that's just a really interesting concept to me, you know, where it's like that was a, a strength, not a weakness in, in one aspect. Oh, totally. I think it's really important to facilitate people just letting their mind wander. It's like yeah. Paul Graham, I think, described programming languages almost like a paint palette. And you're kind of like smearing the paints around and you get to a color that you want and you kind of you throw it on the canvas and then you smear it around a little bit and you're kind of putting something together and it's not necessarily going to be a startup idea. It might just be you having some fun seeing what happens when you put some ideas together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> makes Python so great. <laughs> Python's a great tool. But th- to me, like, I can't just, I mean, I can throw together things, but like, they're not, not in the same way I could when I was doing PHP. When I was doing PHP, it was like, literally copy paste slapping shit left and right you know and it's just like and you just drag and drop it into the server where you host all your stuff and it and there it is you can share it with people and they can use it and it was it was so much fun to do that yeah and and with you know like properly deploy a python application there's a lot of infrastructure involved yeah Uh, you have to actually run all that stuff and now you just uh, run a Heroku command and up it goes right (laughs) (laughs) but even with the Heroku command there's still you know, you have to know how you have to know what a web server is, right? Yeah. Like, and you have to do that stuff, which is, I think, good. It's educational yeah. and teaches people to do things more properly. Um, but you know, in PHP land, you don't even at the time you didn't even you know you just you just Apache. What you know? What what's totally. a server? Yeah. Like you know, like you just drag it in the folder. What are you talking about? Yeah, definitely. It's, or maybe <laughs> on my server, it's in a different spot than yours. It just that's just the way things are. Yeah, or download MAMP. It's just a button. The whole thing just oh. comes on. <laughs> I love MAMP. I, that was uh, one of the last pieces of of development software I pirated. Because <laughs> I was able to afford it after using it for a while. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first piece of software I paid for that wasn't a, a game or something, uh, you know, for like a, a console was um, uh, TextMate. Oh, right on! I, I was so I loved it so much that, uh, and I I easily you know I had previously even used a, a you know a key file I found on the internet or something because uh-huh. <laughs> I, I was completely broke at the time. Uh, and, you know, I was like, I don't need to pay for this, and, yeah. but I'm going to. And that was the first time in my life I think that ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I was such an inspirational piece of software to me. And it, and I, I just, I, I wanted to, I wanted to own it, you know? Yeah. And that was, that was a big moment for me. And, uh, uh, I, I kind of miss that now where, I used to like, you know, I've been really into computers my whole life, like you have, 
And one of my things was always just like trying every single piece of available software. Yes, there, every there window was. manager. I don't care what it is. I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> and just find and you just find like the thing that's the best or that yeah. really inspires you, the thing that you're pumped about. And that does not happen for me anymore. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's me. I I think it's because a lot of that excitement has gone to the iOS store mm. uh, of the development excitement. But like I have not encountered um, an OS X app. Uh, that was like re- really like got me excited in a really long time. I agree. Uh, Slack is the last one that I was uh, pretty excited about, uh, <laughs> and that, that happened last month. But before that, I, I don't even remember the last thing I used, and that was the reason I loved OS X. One of the, one of the reasons that I decided to switch was just look at all this inspirational software that people had built. Yeah, totally. It's I I've always loved the creativity that was kind of going on in the open source world, and so I shared a lot of that excitement too. Like I. I used to think that I got into computers late, but in retrospect, I realized I didn't really. Uh, so I was just 18 when I got into them. And so some of my friends were already like, you should run Linux. And then I had some friends who were like, you should run BSD. And I was like, I don't know what any of that is. And so I'm going to try me, them all. What's that? I'm going to try them all. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, as I talked to people about FreeBSD, I just kept hearing uh, people who always talk about how stable it was and stuff like that. And so I was into that. And then I just kept seeing all this experimentation happening in the Linux side of the world. And I found that the BSD people were like, we're resistant to change because our system is always going to work really well. And it was it was kind of like this, it, the two extremes of the creative spectrum. Like you have the free-for-all, the bizarre, I guess. And then you have yeah. like your cathedral side. And like the thing that made all of this so fascinating was you see the layers. Like I could run Windowmaker on either one. It kind of didn't matter. But if I wanted my OS to operate this certain way, then I would do it this way. And when you talk to people who build OSs, then their concerns are this kind of a thing. And it's like, it was, the computer itself was fascinating, but just all of the creative energy around it, it felt like, it felt punk rock to me. It felt like what I got out of skateboarding culture, you know, like, like the first time I saw somebody chew another person out on the internet, like I kind of interpreted it like it was no different than just like, 90s 80s punk people just yelling at each other over something that doesn't matter really you know it's just like people have their different opinions they're saying what they're into and i just kind of saw the flurry of creativity and it's like i'm gonna hang over there and so it started on the desktops i thought that was cool and everybody sort of settled into a thing and then everybody went to the phones and there was all this activity there and i don't remember the last time i checked the app store for like a need i had you know And stuff is always flowing in. It's like there's always new to-do lists that are slightly better than the one before, and that's cool. Nope. There's just things that happen. It's always the best. Yeah. And so, like, I I feel similar to where you're at, where I'm kind of looking at at the servers, and I'm like, well, my Mac is still basically a a terminal with iTunes or Spotify on it, (laughs) and my phone kind of does the things that I need. And so I find myself sort of looking out at the world going like, well, what's next? I know, I know that if a lot of people are looking at the world going, what's next, there's probably something really cool around the, around the corner if we're all noticing the vacuum. Well, that's the interesting thing is that all those apps and tools that were really cool that inspired me back then, were they were very data-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Like you would, do, you would do things with files, and that's kind of going away with iOS at least. Yeah. I mean, you, don't, you don't even have a concept of a file in that world. Yeah. Um, and you still have it on the desktop, and I don't think the desktop's going away, but I, I guess I... I feel like it's it's almost like we're done. We're kind of getting will. used to it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's like like we figured out we have everything we need. Like, what else do you need to do? You know what I mean? Like, someone yeah. could build a really great OS X app for 
converting audio file types. Like that would be great. Yeah. But like I have one that kind of works and it, you know, that's all you, you know, that's what people use if they find that thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, it's tempting to, to say something like that and then wonder if you're being a curmudgeon. So I would like to add a counterpoint to anybody that's listening that may, may think there's a curmudgeon tone to this, which is that computers have been around for a long time. When I, when I look at the world of computers, I just see all of this time that has been devoted to it, and I see a huge amount of human creativity that have been tried, and I connect that to music. And by the time I, I learned about electric guitars, like they had been around for a long time. You know, like Led Zeppelin had already been around, Beatles had already been around, I'm coming around to guitars like 30 years later. So a huge amount of stuff has been tried, and I'm trying to find a way to carve my own little niche inside it. But I kind of wonder, like, and this is something that comes up in the fact that I play in a punk band right now. So we're called Adventure Capitalists. We write songs <laughs> about hacker culture. We have a song called Working From Home. We have a song about the NSA called No Spoilers Allowed, where we just do a whole bunch of pop culture references, because we think if they're going to listen to our phone calls, then we're going to ruin pop culture for them. <laughs> and so because Rob works at Twilio, he put that song behind a phone number, and you could call it and get the NSA to listen to it. Oh, um, it's like the They Might Be Giants. Yeah, you got it. And so like some of these ideas are, are kind of like an implicit nod to the fact that we're many generations down the punk rock line. But it's still fun for us, and we're still having a great time with it. Um, but I, like I, I don't know. I don't expect us to blow anybody's mind that hasn't heard punk rock before. Yeah, the genres have rock. moved on. Yeah. but you're still you still love it. <laughs> I still love it. So I'm like kind of caught in a point in time. But I, I'm like that I'm, way with uh, prog rock as a consumer. Uh, yeah, I, I love prog rock. All the good stuff is in the '70s. Um, so much, and, and and a lot of the really good stuff for me is also the bridge into like mainstream rock in the 80s too yeah you have like uh boston for example has like a lot of prog rock in it yeah and you just, you just hear little elements of it now and then and yeah there's no prog rock today there is though there's a couple of people that are still doing it and you can find it um, yeah mars volta he, was doing a good job for a while yeah well yeah they're really loud and <laughs> yeah. tool tool is a very um progressive band but you know there's no one who's like doing that right yeah. like and if they are, I don't really want to hear it, like because it's 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 not the same thing. I don't yeah. know. We're moments in time now, but I'll and support them. Yeah, you know, if they are playing locally, I'd show up. But yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna listen. You know, I have other music to listen to. Yeah, and kind of on on the idea of like innovation in, in different places. Like one thing that I that I've really enjoyed recently about music is like I'm not a big fan of dubstep, but I love the fact that it exists. Like somebody came up with a new electronic genre. And now that it's, like, for a while, electronic music was kind of labeled by the tempos that they play. And so, like, trance was, like, a certain thing. Like, <laughs> well, you had two. You had the four on the floor, yeah. that, what you were doing, and then yeah. you had offbeat, and, and then the speed. And that's, those are the modulation points. Yeah. <laughs> like, drum and bass was a tempo and stuff like that. And now that, now that dubstep has come out, it's like, I guess they've covered all the tempos. And so now you've got musicians that are kind of all of these different genres. Like, it's not enough to just be drum and bass anymore. It's like, they've got oh, no, You have to stack. find some hyper-specialized genre. I have no idea. I make electronic music. I have no idea what genre my music falls into. I, I, like, I, I would love for someone who's really into that to tell yeah. me. Cause, but I don't think it does, because it doesn't, I'm not basing it off of anything else. It's just making it. But it's not you. It's not super unique either. You know, like it, there's got to be some name for it. I just do electronic. You know. Yeah, it's, 
it's kind of interesting to say that because if somebody asks you what music you play and you say electronic, they kind of walk away not having any idea, but it's hard to put a better label in some cases. Like in the case with your music, there are times where I feel like I'm in a meditation with you and there are times where I feel like it's sort of some like lightweight melody sitting in the background. And like one way that I would describe it, which doesn't say anything about the genre at all, is that it's really good coding music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Yeah, Everyone tells me that. And it's funny because it's, if I do want to, I'm in a mode lately. Years ago, I always had to listen to music when I was coding, and it was all the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, I usually need silence. Yeah. Um, but if I do listen to music, it's my own. Uh, so I just thought that was because I knew it really well. But I guess people really like it for coding. So it works really well. <laughs> I and should just re- I should rebrand it and just be like music for coding. You oh wow Co- music for coding humans. subliminal messages yeah yeah i'm the same i tend to put like ambient in the background and uh i used to listen to all kinds of chaos chaotic stuff but it's it's too much for me like i'll end up writing i'm I'm coming back around for the last like three or four years i couldn't listen to anything heavy Mm. anymore but i i can now but it has to be old stuff you know like uh yeah the, the stuff i listened to in like middle school and high school that's really, the like thing like about... uh, Hybrid Theory by Lincoln Park. I listened oh, right to it. That's I just I was casually walking down the street the other day, and I was just like, it's the perfect thing to listen to right now. I love yeah. that album. It's great, and, but it's so aggressive and annoyingly emo, and and I don't know. I I just go in phases where sometimes I'm just can't stand the the tone of that music, oh, and other yeah. times I I kind of crave it. Yeah, as a, as a guitar player and a drummer, I listen to a lot of stuff that I, it's definitely aggressive. Like one, for the longest time, one of my favorite bands was still into Escape Plan. <laughs> and it's just like, it's audio Rubik's Cubes to me, you know? So I just get lost inside that. But if I go and I listen to the lyrics and I think about like the kind of culture that the band is cultivating, it's, it's way too negative for me. Like I'm, I really appreciate the stuff that has happened in the tech community where we're getting a lot better about being inviting and being fair and being positive. And then I go back and I listen to the music I listened to when I was a kid and it's so angry and aggressive and and i i it's hard for me to connect with it in any way that is greater than just simple nostalgia but there's definitely a part of me that likes it yeah i've listened to those songs hundreds not hundreds yeah probably tens of thousands of times you know like so they're ingrained in my psyche and in my soul so it's it's always great to revisit those definitely there's some artists like that from that same era that like I, I, I love it just as much as I did, but I'm never in the place to listen to it. And I identify that it's I didn't listen to it as much, basically. Yeah. Like, like uh, Three Days Grace is a good example. Really great music. I like it. Very dark. <laughs> the, the, the lyrics are like very uh, painfully upset. But, yeah. you know, so I can like listen to it like... I can't listen to the whole album though because I, it just like kills me because it's so it brings me down. Yeah. Or the, the other stuff, even if it's just like that, because it's so ingrained in me, it it, it won't bring me down basically. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it's just like I'm beyond I'm beyond everything this album emotionally <laughs> has to offer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely numb to it. Yeah. <laughs> funny how the whatever you listen to between the ages of 14 and 17 uh, one of the most important decisions you'll make in your life <laughs> that's an interesting way of putting it huh it sticks with you forever for me it was a lot of new metal mm. uh mostly i think 14 and 17 yeah yeah a lot of new metal a lot of rock hard rock 
but then I, then I had a big key change. I, I, <laughs> I did have a big key change. It was, uh, I, I was dealing, I guess I was dealing with depression in high school mm. I, at, towards the end, like for like a good six months or a year or something. I didn't label it as that or anything, I, but I was definitely probably depressed. Mm. Uh, and it, it came around when I found 311. I love that band. Right on. They are incredible. And I got so into them. They're just such a positive, uplifting yeah. group. Uh, and it like totally changed my whole perspective on life. And I, I never really went back. You know, I still listen to that stuff. I, li- I like it a lot. But yeah. me, like just having the right music at the right time really... Uh, was really key for me and, but it, it's interesting if i plot out all the music that i love and listen to over the years um it's there's like these pocket genres or or like niches where like i went really deep where i like listened to every album by every artist you know and if this person was on you know was a co-star or a guest on this album then i had his whole discography too mm-hmm. and you know i went deep deep into the nest um there's that but that's, that's not that's like the primary thing that I do but at the moment I don't have one of those that's like current like I don't have I'm, I'm not in discovery mode for anything so mm. if you look at, at this huge graph of all this music I like and listen to it's just all the pop hits from these different eras mm. and it's really interesting you know like you know if you, even the, the stuff from like the 80s uh, and the 70s like some of that's fantastic music but it's it's the pop of the time you know yeah. you have like Kansas and, and all these bands yeah. <laughs> uh, like that stuff is great, but it's like you know it was number one on the radio stuff, and and all the way up through, it's very consistent for me. Where That's I'm, awesome. I'm, and nowadays, if I'm ever finding something new, it's it's the same way. I, I'm listening. It's mostly hip hop, actually. So <laughs> right on. <laughs> I but I listen to like top forties hip hop mostly, yeah. and then you know I'll find someone every once in a while. You know there'll be songs I like, and then every once in a while there'll be someone really special and then i'll like go into their discography yeah uh and that's that's kind of how it works for me yeah but that's only like two people a year at the most you know it's very low when i was in middle school and high school it was like six or yeah. 12 or 12 a year you know like it yeah. was a much much denser information flow <laughs> definitely i like i was uh i guess this dates me a little bit but uh, like music wasn't just plentiful on the internet when I was in high school, you know? So like going out to the record shops was like a, that was a cool thing. It, it was hard. That's another thing too. Music was not easy for me to come by. Yes. Yeah. So that probably made it more valuable to me. Yeah. Now I literally just, you know, I, I use title now. I know I'm the only person, <laughs> but I, I actually like I it. I was had a, to be at least one. Well, I used a beta in, uh, like, two years ago but mm. before anybody and it was the worst thing i'd ever used in my life <laughs> uh but it's really good now i like it and i am a hardcore spotify user was yeah. uh as well i was i was using it in the u.s two years before it launched in the u.s oh that's doing, nice. so you had a european account though uh yeah and i had a reverse proxy and a fake paypal so i could pay them and yeah it, it was you really like trouble sharing links too i had one of those well there also. was no there was no social like they, there was no one on there. My friends list had like two people, and then as soon as it launched in the U.S., it got full. Oh, I thought you, maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought you could grab like the Spotify URI, that like weird URI system that they have. <laughs> maybe 
maybe not. Yeah, you could. Well, what what for? To share to, with someone else who uses Spotify? Yeah, because I found I, that because I, I had I was European... the only person in the U.S. using it. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, so once everybody in America could use it, I found that I, none of my links worked for them because I had a European account, and so I would oh. try to share, and it kept failing, and I was like, I, I managed to, my to migrate my account over. It oh, was wow. not easy. You, hmm. Do you still have a European account? Not anymore, no. Uh, it's, uh, I, there was a moment when Spotify changed their UI, if you remember right, like it all went black. Yeah. And on iOS, they had this really bad issue where they were clearly making network calls in the UI thread. And I was like, I can't handle this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it would just wait for five seconds. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm pretty tolerant of software errors, but if something gets in the way of my music listening, I, I become very impatient. <laughs> I really like Tidal because... It's uh, and I was really adverse to liking it, but uh, I do like it, and I I've been using it every day for probably I don't know five months at least. Right on. And uh, I, I I like the that you can pay for extra audio quality for the mm. for the lossless is really nice. Mm. Uh, and and there's a people who work at Spotify will like begrudgingly look down upon you and be like, science says that you can't tell the difference. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I'm like. I, don't, I just can't even respond to that. Pretty sure science would say their UI is way too confusing, too. So if you really <laughs> want to get into the science. Well, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> arguments for and against, but I don't think you should ever proactively say that someone shouldn't use something that they, uh, they, really, that they find benefit in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they have the lossless. It's more expensive, but again, like I would pay Spotify 50 bucks a month for lossless access. Oh, wow. Um, and... Uh, What's the other thing? Oh, just the way the the way the alp, the starring system works is a lot better mm. for me. I, I hate the way the favorite list works in Spotify. They've changed it or kind of got rid of it. I lost it was, all my you stars. Just, yeah, you just star things and then uh, they go into a playlist. Um, and then if you star an album, it just puts the whole every track in the, in the same list. And mm. so on on here, you know, you go under like my music or whatever it's called, and there's like a little section for each one that you can click on. And there's one for albums, one for mm. artists, one for songs, and you can star all those separately. Mm. Uh, and that, I really like that a lot. So I can just one day go to artists and be like, I just want to listen to 311. That's or awesome. I can go to like, oh, I want to listen to The Life of Pablo right now. Mm. Or like, I just want to go through all the random tracks that I've starred. So the way, it's, a, it's a workflow thing. And I, I think it's a good improvement. Yeah, Spotify is kind of interesting in that way, I think, because the UI is kind of chaotic. <laughs> But I'm pretty sure that most of Spotify users know their one weird little path to get to the feature that they care about. And Spotify has all of the features in there. So pretty much yeah. everyone can find their one weird little path to get to the thing that they need. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that it, if, if you are comparing the two and want to consider looking at title, the uh, Spotify completely trumps it in uh, playlists. Mm. Like 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 one like ones that are already available mm. like there there's some really good spotify playlists available that you can subscribe to the title has the same thing but they're like not they're just not nearly as good basically mm. you know mm. the, the spotify ones are just really top notch yeah. and um the social aspect there's not you don't really have any of that uh i think you might be able to have friends or something but mm. spotify is very social you have an inbox and you can send people links and yeah, and, and yeah. look at what people are listening. There's none of that, which I think is an improvement. I, I like having my, um, you know, I, I like it being the way it was when I was younger, basically. You know, where I just I can listen to music privately. Yeah, I I had a, 
I, I when they originally launched the feature, I turned it on. So every single Spotify song I listened to would go on my Facebook profile, like as a status update or something. Oh, really? And it, it's amazing the the way that changes your the social mechanics of your behavior. Uh, I was I turned on the radio one day, and it was like a Justin Bieber song or something like that. And I immediately went to the dial to change it because, like in my mind, that's gonna go on my Facebook. You know, like. Yeah. It, but it was the, a physical radio. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's not healthy behavior. And Twitter used to affect me the same way. I, I, I was following like 4,000 people at one point. Way and, past Dunbar's uh, number. Or it might have been two. I don't two, two or 4,000. It was too many either way. Mm. Uh, and I was like really stressed out. I would sit on, I, I recognized one day, uh, I was like sitting on my couch just having like thoughts, you know, just thoughts. Mm. And, I was censoring my own thoughts based on like what that audience would think of them, you know, sure. and, um, and uh, so I unfollowed everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to delete myself off the internet because I was so stressed out about things. I actually did uh, that once. Oh, did you did? I used to go by J Two Labs pretty much everywhere on the internet. Oh, I remember that I just name. Stopped. Yeah. Huh. Even and you, my... you did a four ten. I'm sorry. So you, you did a four ten gone. Yeah, pretty much. I wow. um, so the way that you just I just like deleted up, all the repos and yeah. Wow. Well, I kept up the GitHub just because I was worried about anybody depending on the software or something like that. Okay. Um, but I got rid of the the Instagram, Twitter, all of that stuff. Huh. And yeah, it's um. What, what so are your I, takeaways from that? Uh, well, my behavior changed kind of permanently, I would say, um, because a lot of the people that I felt were following me were people that I knew through Python and I didn't really know, but I felt this like kind of obligation that I should follow them and learn things about them. And it was like context about people that I didn't know filling up my head. And I started to feel a bit claustrophobic about it. But I, at the time that I was actively developing open source, I wanted, it was like an intentional decision to be as inviting as possible. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to be as friendly and helpful to anyone, and if there was a way I could maximize serendipity, I was just going to go for it. Um, and so then when I kind of pulled away from the open source and started doing the investing kind of stuff, I found there was this whole other kind of collection of people that were starting to follow me. And, um, my business partner was this guy, John Maloney, who used to be president of Tumblr for a long time, and so Tumblr is a thing in New York City. So if you meet somebody and you tell them that you're working with this guy, it's like, all these people on Twitter and I, I don't know who they are. And <laughs> so when the investing stuff uh, finished, um, I was like, I don't know any of these people. I am feeling burned out on startups. I would really like to somehow satisfy my need to burn everything down right now. <laughs> I'm just going to erase myself from social media. And if at some point I realize that I miss anything, then I'll just create the time again. I won't, I won't think that hard about it, but I want to experience oh, so you're considering like. it an ephemeral identity? Yeah. Kind of. Like, what is life like without this? And if I want it back, I'll bring it back. But I want to see what it's like if I just get rid of all of it. And whatever I miss, then that's interesting. And whatever I don't miss, well, I guess I didn't need it. And so, For me, oh, sorry. No, yeah, well, I mean, I, I set up the Twitter account. I started following some people, and most of the people that... Uh, I interact with are people that I actually know, uh, which is kind of what I wanted out of Twitter. And then the other people that I follow are, are just thinkers that I admire for some reason. People who, who talk about communities, people who talk about economics and stuff like that. And so Twitter has become 
it's not really a place I hang out in as much. It's, it's mostly a place that I use as like a, a news source, and I've kind of settled into the fact that like my non-programming friends are all on Facebook, so that's just where they are. They network effects beat me on that. <laughs> For me, I had I was so close to just deleting everything. I was very stressed out. This is a long time mm. ago, uh, like three years ago, probably. Uh, I was dealing with this like chronic migraine and all this other stuff, and I was just like reevaluating every part of my life. And yeah. a big part of me was like real. I just there was a ton of anxiety. I was on the quest to remove anxiety at the moment, yeah. and uh, and I realized that a huge source of it was just the, this whole like online persona thing. Mm. Uh, I, I don't have a persona. I'm myself online, but you know that idea of like there's this identity that's up there. Author of requests. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I came really close to deleting everything, uh, doing a 410 gone. Um, <laughs> but I, I realized, you know, I was like, what what would I miss the most? Uh, and immediately, the f- this is going to sound really shallow and <laughs> terrible, but um, immediately the first thing was just, you know, having the ab- ability to share things is really, really important to me. Yeah. Um, and so if I was to just, like, delete my Twitter account, um, then I would lose that ability, basically, you know, to like reach a large amount of people with something interesting, mm. whether I made it or somebody else did. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, so that's that's the primary value that I'm getting out of out of that service, because uh, I can interact again, like you said, I can interact. I wouldn't have deleted my Facebook in a million mm. years. I would have deleted everything else. Then. Um, <clears throat> so you know, like my real friends are, are all on Facebook mostly. Mm. Uh, so I didn't do it. I decided I, what I decided to do was go into publish only mode. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, I had a little script that I ran and it, on, it took all my list of followers, uh, threw them into a Twitter list for backup mm-hmm. and then, uh, deleted them all as, you know, or sorry, all the people I was following. Mm-hmm. So I was following zero people. Uh, and I was really worried that I, cause I couldn't, unfollow individual people because they get upset yeah sure um you know like you know really big fans and stuff and because they they noticed uh, sometimes when i did that yeah uh and i don't like that feeling so i i had to do it in bulk so basically so i just did it to everybody yeah uh and then like after like i don't know a year or something i started following like 30 people or something and mm-hmm. it's, it's going up to like 300 now i did the same for facebook this last week or two i i went from having like 16 or 1800 friends to uh uh just around 900 well done uh there was a lot of work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was and it was the same thing i had a uh there was a, there's this network of photographers on there that uh are kind of like social climbers and everyone's mm-hmm. friends with everybody and it's like this little club of, of Leica photographers and um, but I, I was looking at them and I'm like I don't know I know like two of these people um, and they've never liked any of my photos one time you know <laughs> so like why am I friends with these people so I removed yeah. them and they all had like 3,000 plus friends mm-hmm. uh, so that was a big indicator of, of that stuff and then I the unfortunate thing is I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of fans from India who added me on Facebook mm-hmm. they have a different Face, uh, different Facebook culture than we do here. Mm. Um, a lot more incestuous. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So you know, and I was I was excited and happy to always accept before, but it yeah. ended up being like 150 people that I had. I didn't even know how to pronounce, let alone you know pronounce their names, let alone uh, I didn't yeah. know any, didn't know anything about them. Some of them I know, and they're there, yeah. but like 
the majority of them have no idea who they are so just yeah. get, ri- get rid of them and then that was done that took like a night and then yeah. just uh two like two nights ago i went through again uh and i did it with local people like people who live here oh, people right who live in san francisco and all the social circles and i was yeah. like do I like this person? <laughs> or, a, do I know this person? B, do I like this person? And C, that's a big one. Do I like this person? Because mm-hmm. you can, you can not dislike someone and still not like them. You know, like yeah. you can just have a general like meh. Yeah. You know, and like, and the third one was, uh, are they going to do anything? You know, are they interesting? Am I interested in what they're doing? That type mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. So, if they didn't fit those three criteria. I generally hit hit delete. Uh, yeah. So I moved a lot of people from high school that like. No, you know they haven't even put po- i don't know just there are people that i kept and there are people that i didn't that's just yeah it's, <laughs> sometimes it's just a huge relief to just clear up the cog- cognitive load at different yeah. points and it's sometimes it's just a context switch so like um this is relevant to where i'm at, at the moment because so when i first left financial services i didn't really know anyone in the hacker community here in new york and so i wanted to to meet people and um, I figured I would just do what I always did in punk communities, which is like give people a reason to come together, <laughs> see how that works. And so I started a, a meetup called the Dumbo Tech Breakfast. Uh, and it was, um, I was trying to get in touch uh, with Sean O'Connor, who's another Python hacker. He was doing, oh, I know him. Yeah. He's cool. He was doing NYC Python for a little bit. And so I didn't really know anyone. And I asked if he would meet me for lunch at some point. And he was like, I might be able to do that next week. And I was like, okay. And so it turns out he's a bit busy. And I'm thinking, well, how can I like maximize serendipity somehow here? So I was like, would you get together for breakfast? I know that's like a weird hour for programmers. <laughs> uh, but I'd really love to just like hear your thoughts on being a Python programmer in New York. And he's like, I think I have an idea. And he sets up a meetup page for this thing called the Dumbo Tech Breakfast and makes me one of the organizers. And I was like, what is this thing? <laughs> okay. He's like, well, you said you wanted to meet people. And I was like, yeah, I guess this will work. All right. And so, so he solved your problem instead of having to do it, deal with it himself. Kind of. Well, I mean, he was one of the organizers too. So he, he would come sometimes. And um, he invited me out to this dinner. And Justin Lilly is there. And Andrew Kashevitz is there. So Andrew goes by APG Waz on Twitter. And when I first meet him, he's wearing a Bane shirt. And so for people who don't know, uh, Bane is a hardcore band. And people who like Bane tend to really like them a lot. And so uh, I'm wearing a Dillinger Escape Plan hoodie. And I'm like, hey, Andrew, that's a cool t-shirt. And he's like, cool hoodie. And I was like, we should probably be friends, huh? And he's like, I don't know. What's your opinion on skiing? And I was like, well, it was one of my first programming languages. And he's like, yeah, okay, maybe we can be friends. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of like this guy. So... <laughs> We start talking, and he um, he had just joined Meetup, and uh, Meetup was asking him to start a Meetup so that he could understand the experience from the user's point of view and so on. And so he had read uh, Zed Shaw's Free Hackers Union and had it in mind that he wanted to create like a space of some kind for hackers, and he didn't really know how to do it yet. And so uh, he had some ideas for like a show-and-tell kind of a thing, and I was like, well, it would be kind of cool if it wasn't like instead of what we would do seeing bands, instead of four bands in some dingy basement or a VFW hall, like maybe it could be 10 hackers in like a corporate office after hours or something like that. And so he did the first, he did two hack and tells uh, in meetups offices. And then uh, I had kind of been hounding him because I was like, I wanna, I wanna help you with this meetup. I love everything about it. Um, you and I both come from the same punk backgrounds, so it could be fun to do this. 
And then he brings me in as an organizer from the third meetup on. And it was kind of an interesting point in New York City because uh, Wall Street had just been decimated. And there were a lot of programmers in the city who didn't really know where they fit in here anymore. And suddenly, because Wall oh, Street yeah, had been decimated. Oh, yeah, New York especially, that's probably a huge problem. Yep. And so because Wall Street had been decimated, you also had... Um, <clears throat> you had a lot of money that was going into startup stuff because people had no idea. Like the finance side of the world was like, where do we put our capital to get more money? And so New York was smart and was like, how about startups? And then that gave a lot of people jobs here. And so the recruiters came out and pretty much all of the meetups in the city were like, come and check out my startup pitch. And then me and Waz were like really anti-recruiter, anti-startup, and were basically like, you can come and hang, but you have to be a hacker. And uh, so we were sending out, like, what I didn't realize was we were sending out a really strong signal to New York City that if you're the kind of hacker that you're just sick of people who aren't hackers, you just want to hang out with a bunch of nerds and just get into the details for a little bit, not worrying about a startup pitch or somebody looking for a technical co-founder. It's a, a no recruitment us. zone. Yeah. Well, so, like, really, uh, like, after the third meetup, Andrew, uh, somebody tried to send out, like, a recruiting offer to the list. And this is when I got a sense of who Andrew was. Andrew emails the list immediately and it's like, oh, thank you for ruining my day. I can't believe you just pissed all over our mailing list. And I was like, uh, well, that was sort of drastic. <laughs> and so I didn't know what to make of that. Like, I didn't, I didn't know Andrew had that side to his personality. But I was kind of like, uh, what would the punk rock community do? I think they'd just let this happen and see what happens. Like, screw the corporate thinking. Like, okay, let's just go with it. And so anytime somebody tried to recruit on the mailing list, we'd sort of piss all over the email. And uh, it ended up becoming like this really strong magnet for kind of frustrated programmer types, of which there were a lot in the city at the time. And the formula was simple. You talk about something for five minutes, you take questions for five minutes, and then we've got about 10 people who do this. And we would do it like once a month, so maybe once a month. all lightning months. talks. Yeah, kind of, but it was always, it always had to be something that you built because you just wanted it to exist. So no startup pitches, no work projects, and you're not allowed to do any talks from slide decks. The ideal would be if you came up, plugged your laptop in, opened up a terminal, and just started talking one types of stuff. So that's what we were going for specifically. And um, so we did that for a long time, and it was great. Like Hacker School uh, came up around that time. There was a flurry of activity just here in the city in general. And so that, that was about six years ago. And I recently stepped down from Hack Intel uh, about two weeks ago. So Andrew moved to San Diego. Uh, Andrew works for Heroku uh, also, but he works from home down in San Diego. And when he first moved, I was kind of like, well, I'm not totally sure what I want this meetup to be because I also kind of feel like maybe programming isn't the thing that I use all my time for because I started playing drums and I was fascinated by that. And I was kind of in this state probably for two years where I felt like my identity was really attached to this kind of like rough and tumble hacker culture meetup, but who I was becoming and where I was going, uh, I didn't feel it that way anymore. And so kind of a, like here's where a bit of the timing sort of gets in. Um, we didn't have a code of conduct. We didn't have anything. Like it was just, there was basically no rules. And at the time we did the meetup, we thought that was a good thing. Um, and so as time went by, um, I bet that changed. Oh, yeah, it changed. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, Hacker School was a big force, or, sorry, Recurse Center, uh, was a big force on this for me because uh, when I grew up in punk rock, you would hear lyrics about feminism and 
racism and they were preaching good values and Fugazi was talking about being mindful as a consumer and stuff like that. And then I get to computing and I go to get a computer science degree and it's like pretty much all white dudes, three women, and like that's it. And so I kind of felt like what I cherished about punk rock, which was just like embracing diversity, like didn't appear to be anywhere in computing. And so I kind of thought that if I if I interacted with the community in like a punk rock sense, then like the people who share those values will kind of emerge, I'll find them, and maybe we can do something to affect change here. And so Andrew was kind of on the side where uh, he liked no rules a lot, and he wasn't quite as convinced that we needed a code of conduct. And so I felt that we did, and I know that it's a, I know that it's a complicated topic, and I believe that he was coming coming from it in a good place. Like he, he just wanted to make sure hackers could kind of do whatever they wanted. And my view is that sometimes leads to trouble. And so... Well, uh, if you're going for the, the punk rock thing, then not having one would be right. punk rock nowadays. Right. So by by trying to understand the experience for, for minorities and women in computing culture, I felt like I was living up to the punk rock ideals and kind of changing on the anarchist side of punk rock, the kind of do whatever you want all the time and I was kind of becoming more of the like I grew up in the suburbs and wouldn't mind if everyone felt comfortable punk rock so so you're going more towards Green Day (laughs) yeah it's like maybe punk rock started with like Black Flag and Sex Pistols but I kind of got into it with Blink-182 you know (laughs) my favorite uh, (laughs) punk band is uh, The Offspring yeah they're great totally I love it they're the only one I really ever needed yeah it's well I mean like that kind of speaks to the the lack of innovation that exists in punk rock, but, the, but we still love it, right? You just need <laughs> three chords and one drum beat. Pretty much. <laughs> it's kind of like Python. It's uh, You spend an afternoon with Rob Spector, and you'll have a Flask app that's sending you text messages. Spend an afternoon with a guitar, and you might have a punk band. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, funny. Uh, the interesting thing was... Like, you, well, actually, if you spend an afternoon with Rob, you might have both. Yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> So uh, Andrew moved to San Diego, and then I was kind of stuck with this meetup, uh, trying to figure out, like, what should it be? What do I want it to be? And so I thought this was a great time to set up a code of conduct. And if my interest in kind of programming all the time in hacker culture is perhaps waning, the best thing that I could do by stepping away from the community was to put a code of conduct in place and to try and reach out to the 3,500 people that are part of the community here and be like, hey, by the way, these are things you should think about. Uh, you, like, just consider what it means to say my grandma could build it, because maybe that's not a friendly statement to everybody. And so I thought that it was a great opportunity to to grow up myself, but to also kind of get the meetup to grow up. Uh, and yeah. then after that was done, uh, I there were three other organizers: uh, Aditya Mukherjee, Sasha Mandi, and Daniel Sucher. And they, they all came from the Chris Center, too. Um, and so we all worked together on the Code of Conduct, and then I stepped down and just kind of handed them the meetup. And it's, it's interesting. It's uh, like a part of my identity definitely broke off when I stepped down. But I think that had to happen. It's, uh, it felt similar to me when a band's time had just come and it was time for me to move on and do something else. Um, it's, it's just like a rite of passage. I can tell kind of represented something about who I was and I needed to move away from it. I've done a code of conduct one time and uh, the culture was a bit different then. This is in very early 2013 mm. for uh, the Waza Heroku conference. Oh, sure. Uh, the, there was the, the first one we didn't have 
have one. Uh, the second one, it had become. I wanted us to have one, uh, and I was I was in charge of all the speakers, and you know I was involved in organizing of it. So, but I didn't want to have like the classic one that everyone was copy and pasting around. Yeah, I, I wanted to be like you know what's the real thing they're trying to get at, and so. I wouldn't today. I would probably use one of those re, pre-written things, mm. um, maybe change the tone a bit. Um, but so here's the whole thing. I just I I'm really proud of it because of how simple it is and it was effective. But uh, we didn't have any issues. So it's be respectful. Please expect oh expect respect in return. Should any issues arise, contact a staff member who will be ready to help. And that's the whole thing. That's awesome. Yeah, and I, I, I was like, if you really boil it down to what really needs to be said, it's that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, well, so not unfortunately, but the reason those things exist, though, is to help make people feel comfortable uh, who are from uh, any, you know, this, if, if let's say if someone wants to come and they wouldn't come otherwise, you want yeah. to write, write something that facilitates them feeling comfortable enough to come. Yeah. So it's, that doesn't really cover all the bases, basically. But yeah. I really like it. I still think it's a cool cool little thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's concise and it, it gets to the point, definitely. Um, one thing that, that we put into ours was we tried to capture some behaviors that we also thought uh, can be frustrating. So an example is we list a well actually as a specific behavior that we don't want people to do. A what? A well actually. And so this is like, um, oh. let's say that you make a point and then I go, well actually, and then I make some tiny little nuanced point, which is not really too different than yours, but suddenly it looks as though I know the topic better than you. <laughs> I think the purpose of this comment is essentially just to kind of put down the other person and a bit of grandstanding. And so we identify this as a particular behavior and be like, hey, you don't need to do this. We don't so in addition to making people, in addition to helping people feel safe, uh, yours goes to the extent of trying to help uh, actively reduce negative social you got it. mechanisms effectively. Make people more aware of the things that they're not necessarily aware of. That, that's a very uh, progressive one. It's also a Pythonic thing because we're making things explicit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hmm. All right, so we are we're at we're well we can go as long as we want, but it's uh it's getting long. So yeah. well, this is the the standard length is around here. So let me look at our things here. Let's do do. I feel like it would be good to touch on. Uh, we have some topics here that are pre-written down okay. on um, mental health. Um, oh, yeah. Hopefully not uh, do any, you know, keep keep it concise, I guess. Yeah. So mental health. I wrote a blog post about mental health. Yeah. Uh, I, I had an issue <laughs> thinking that arose because it turns out brains are just like uh, livers and they develop strange issues from time to time mm. uh, or can have chronic issues. And uh, I discovered that I had a very chronic issue, and uh, it was quite a fun thing. I, I, was, I have bipolar disorder, it turns out, which is not what I thought it was uh, when I got the diagnosis. I didn't really know what it was. I had some ideas, but uh, no, it was much, much different than what I thought it was. Uh, but I'm doing really well, fantastic, and I, I enjoy talking about it because I think it helps reduce the stigma uh, around these things because it, again it's just like a liver effectively you can, people have problems with their livers people have problems with their brains we shouldn't be so overly sensitive to that although 
you should be sensitive to people who have those issues because they might still be dealing with the trauma of something that happened. Mm. But anyway, uh, you you said you had something in, in particular around he- mental health you, you wanted to discuss. Yeah. Um, so there have been uh, some kind of issues related to mental health around uh, my family at different points in time. And uh, so I've had uh, hypomanic traits for most of my life, but I have never been officially diagnosed until um, a process that started today. <laughs> I know nothing about hypomania. <laughs> Yeah, it's... Uh, Nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it seems to be common um, with people who are creatively very driven. It's, I think there's something in the trait which is, I kind of like it, and it also kind of controls me to some extent. And For me, it's like, it's purely a fantastic thing. Mm. But it, unless it proceeds into mania. But that doesn't happen to you. What is the... What, what do you find that is not positive? Um, for me, it's uh, the not positive side, I guess, would be that I just have these kinds of moments where it doesn't really matter too much whether what I'm saying is right or wrong. It's just going to kind of come out in a more extreme form. And yeah. so if I have a really strong point to make, it might be a really aggressively made, or it could be... Uh, your, your inhibitions are lowered and you have a higher impulsivity. Yeah. And like there's and the, it, and it, Oh, I have a favorite little quote, uh, excessive goal oriented activity. Yeah. So, uh, just kind of catalog the last few years. I've organized three meetups. I've played in four bands. I've written multiple open source projects and I like to mentor and tutor new programmers in the city. And so it's, I tend to get something in mind, like I can make the world better by doing this thing. And I just go for it. And I'm fully into it before I even stop to go, Hey, wait, do I have time for this? <laughs> <laughs> you just need to sleep less and you can do everything. Right. <laughs> so for people who enjoy creating things, sleeping less is, um, it might even be interpreted as a good thing. It's, I've definitely done a lot of cool projects overnight. And so just, you, just make sure you don't stay awake for 20 days straight. Oh gosh, I that, know. That's, that's what I did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> It's, I think it's really great that you're willing to share the story so openly and share it with the public. Like I, I think like we can talk high level about the fact that now is a moment in time when this can be done. Uh, yeah. We can talk in a micro level and say like that's very powerful of you to be able to do that and to, to help people. And I think like right now is an interesting point in time because we're sending so much data to the internet. Text processing is pretty good. There's a lot of great machine learning stuff out there. We're sending our heart rates out to the internet. So, like, these things can be pulled down and they can be monitored and they can be processed. And maybe you can figure out, because somebody never takes their Fitbit off, that their heart rate was spiking at the moment they wrote this thing that had gnarly sentiment in their post. And there's lots of ways that you can figure out what's, what's going on in somebody's life, and then you can communicate that to other people. So let's say somebody needs a bit of support. There's no reason that they couldn't say, hey, I authorized my brother to to get a signal if it seems as though my quantified mental health is kind of going off of the charts. And so mental health... What's really interesting about what you just said is that when they launched it, I was really confused, but Apple has the health kit mm. available, uh, and effectively what it is is a platform, kind of like a spreadsheet, but you know it's very navigable, and you can put 
it can accept any type of input for certain types of data. Like it has a slot for eight different heart um, mm. parameters over time and rec records for data and they can be input manually or uh, with different accessories. And I, I think that they're thinking in that line where, oh, where where they want to enable like a practitioner to be like, okay, this data was measured at this time with this device I gave this person yeah. on their phone and there's a pretty chart, you know, like I, I think it's cool. I, I think it's cool to see them thinking about this stuff before the general public is. Yeah. It's, it's great that they're way out in front because they're going to end up building platforms that a lot of us build these kinds of tools on top of and so on. Yeah, so exactly. When the public gets around to it, but hopefully the infrastructure is in place. Um, That's the only thing I know of that exists like that. Yeah, there's, well, so people are starting to think on it. And so like the point in time is kind of like the key thing for me here. Um, because so bit of context, um, last summer, uh, I had been working with startups for about five and a half, six years, and I was feeling really burned out. Uh, the startup that I did before my last job uh, was one that I started and threw everything at it, uh, got rid of a bunch of my possessions, just had a mattress on the floor, a laptop, and my cat. And uh, I took on the stress of trying to build a company from scratch. And there's lots of people who want to try to do that. Uh, the amount of effort that you have to put in is greater than any other job that you've taken on. And so I went through that, and the company uh, didn't really go anywhere. Um, the, my business partner kind of pulled back. Um, so Yahoo bought Tumblr. Uh, he went on vacation for a month. I think he kind of thought, maybe I don't need to run into another company. Maybe I'll just chill on some of this Yahoo money for a little bit. And so I was kind of screwed going, well, what am I going to do? And so you can imagine the stress of that. Uh, I was basically broke and reached out to some of my friends who were at this company called VHX. And I was like, um, we invested in you a little while ago. Uh, I'm currently looking for a job. Like, do you have anything that I could do for you? And they were like, well, the whole back end is written in Rails. And I was like, um, how about an iPhone app? And they're like, yeah, we can do that. How much iOS experience do you have? And I was like, none. And they're like, well... All right, we've seen you write some open source. Maybe do a shot. And so I do that for a year, uh, well, a year and a half. And so I am financially on my knees, but I'm, I'm kind of the stubborn person who I can be completely desperate and still ask someone to give me a chance building tech that I've never worked with before. Uh, so I do that, and I just kind of got burned out. I was, I was feeling like I had been working super hard and I wasn't necessarily going anywhere. I had put a huge amount of time into the community around New York, and I just needed a break. And so I quit the job and just sat on my couch for a month and a half just reading books, just reading whatever I felt like doing. And then a friend of mine uh, from DARPA reaches out and is like, hey, I have this idea. We think now might be a pretty good time to start trying to use machine learning and data uh, to work on mental health. And so I was like, okay, what do you have in mind? And he's like, well... Right now, we want to start with this thing where people can just donate their data to us. And so we can start building research data sets and get a lot of people just working on it. And so uh, my friend works for, for DARPA, um, who, I, who I now work for by nature, working for my friend. But he, he talks to Johns Hopkins, he talks to UMass, he's touched with Harvard, all these di different schools. And so they're all kind of working on this at the same time. And <clears throat> it was it, like, it, it just kind of. It was perfect. And so I was like somewhat aware of the trouble that the 
Veterans Association has been having with vets suicides. 22 vets kill themselves a day. They're armed. Wow, really? 22 a day. And they're all armed. I, I had a great conversation with a, a vet recently, a friend of mine, and he filled me in on all the issues around mental health care in the, in a, in the VA. And it, it was... Not, I won't say alarming. It was just uh, it was interesting to hear about. Yeah, it could be better. Um, and like the circumstances are gnarly. In many cases, what's actually happening is the country goes, we need you to go to some other country and fight a war for us, and then we bring them back. And yeah, they may exactly. have killed people. And like I, I don't know how somebody can come back from that. And so the reality This guy is, was really upset for uh, another reason, too. I guess that... It was interesting to hear the mechanics. I don't know if it's true, but apparently the, um, the like drug companies ha- will test. They won't test, but like before a medication gets rolled out to the general population, they will. The VA will have it first, basically, mm-hmm. sure. because they have lots of data on the, those individuals. Obviously, they have a huge um, amount of data. Yeah, it's those yeah. people are not civilians, so they're in a different system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, all the all the repercussions of that were pretty drastic. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. Like, we almost never encounter people who don't think this is important and needs to be done. And when we start talking to people about it, they kind of have this epiphany. Like, yeah, we've had Facebook for a little while. We've had Instagram for a little while. And they look at the wrist, and some of them are wearing Fitbit. They're going, oh wow, why hasn't psychology been upgraded by technology yet? And so we just think this is a really great time. And so like there's different perspectives. Like one of my favorite models for an internet service of some kind is like a peer-to-peer sort of a network where users are basically helping each other. And so there's a company called Coco, which is kind of like this. And the idea is that one company will describe, uh, or one person will just describe a situation that they're in. And then the other users on the network will see this and attempt to help them reframe it into a more positive light. And so this is users that are helping each other. And we have that on Facebook. The uh, we have a bipolar support group. Oh, is and, that true? Uh, huh? Yeah, it's, and it's it's interesting. Yeah, uh, Facebook very, is super open to this. It's really great. It's not a very good group, but it's uh yeah. But you know, if someone's having a serious emotional issue, they'll come in, and then everyone will be like, "Don't." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's well. So we kind of we sort which of is sometimes it, like, what what you need to hear. You know, if you're yeah. in a space like that. Yeah, like, why don't we have Nagios for people in a way? <laughs> you know? Nagios for people? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're, if you're having a tough time, like, it would be kind of cool if something on the internet could figure this out and alert a friend. Well, there is a... I've been doing some podcasting with uh, this group called the Mental Health News Radio, and uh, I did an interview with this guy who... This is a, this is a huge field of... Um, can't remember the exact term. Uh, it was a cool term, but basically, um, teleconference version of therapy is oh, very wow. common. Tele, tele. I don't know. It's not teletherapy. It might be something like that. Sure. But yeah, it's a it's a, a big thing um, where you know because it makes it more accessible for people. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think like one really interesting way of thinking about the problem is that. Um, a typical patient will go and see a therapist maybe for half an hour or an hour, and then they're gone, and then they come back a week later, and then they, they talk for half an hour or perhaps an hour, and then there's a bit of a cycle around this. And so something that is kind of, something that's very important is the fact that this is all, 
like the the therapist is blind while the patient is not there and the therapist has to trust what the patient is saying when they come back in so if a tool can if a patient agrees to have their their feeds pulled down and analyzed then the therapist also has a way of understanding what's actually happening to that person during the week and they have better insight into how they're doing so there unfortunately are people who are in in therapy that are not interested in getting better and so they sometimes lie to their therapists and they create stories because they need to go to therapy but don't necessarily want to be there and don't understand the value just yet of, of what they can get out of it. And so we think this so, is just a good way to put the therapist more in touch with what's going on. So what I know you you said but you also said a lot of things. I yeah. got I lost. So what it, what specifically does uh you're working with DARPA on this data project. What specifically is that doing? So we've, we've been doing it for a year. Uh, what we built first was a tool called Our Data Helps. And so this is ourdatahelps.org. You can go there, create an account, basically OAuth a bunch of your networks, and then we have access to pull all the data down. And then we have an analytics pipeline that runs in the background and processes it and tends to figure out uh, some things based on all of that data. And so, so now, if I'm a user and I want to submit data, what format does that? Is it like Excel or something? Or? Oh no, you just you just owe off Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll pull the rest of it. Oh, that kind of data. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, so we're we're starting with that. Like we also. So do, is it more like here you pull in your accounts and then? Yeah, that's it. It's and like then you, then, your then you have like a description about what you are. It might be like I have bipolar disorder or something. Or uh, getting there, getting there. So like we okay, have, I should we check have about, it out. Yeah. We have about 20 different disorders that we look at, and some of the analytics are good on them, and some of the analytics are not so good on other ones. Uh, we're getting better at it. But. And uh, is there any benefit to me if I do this? Do I get to see the graphs? Not yet. Not yet. It's, uh, Wait, it's uh, all supporting kind of internal research at the moment, but graphs are uh, next six months. Cool. Wait, yeah. And what was the URL one more time? Ourdatahelps.org. Cool. And I might so, have to check. Yeah, it's, our thinking on this one is that there's a lot of people who want to help. They're not necessarily sure how to help. So we think one of the really easy ways is to just authenticate a bunch of accounts and donate your data to the research effort. Hmm. And so we ask the user like some extra information, like um, have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Um, are you LGBTQ? Like we're we're kind of we're trying to get as diverse a picture as we can on who the person is and what factors contribute to it and. If a suicide attempt was made, we ask for the date, and then it's easy enough to take that date and connect it to all the other things that were going on in the feeds. And so, like things like Facebook and Instagram, that's we've seen startups do that for a long time. But things like like Fitbit is getting a little more interesting. We're starting to get some actual bio data on the user. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. All right. I think that that is all the time we have for today. Okay. Cool. A- any last words? Um. That's it. This was really fun. Um, is there anything I could expand upon that, that you need? Mm, I think that you covered everything pretty well. Cool. I feel satisfied with it for now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us, everybody. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Cut. Ooh, that was a long one. <laughs>